Before we begin, I want to thank the sponsor of Oil & Gas Upstream, Oliva Gibbs. Oliva Gibbs provides clear legal solutions to complex oil, gas, and mineral law issues nationwide. We believe that when we focus on serving people, good things happen in the lives of our clients and employees. We just happen to be a law firm. Learn more at oglawyers.com. Oil and gas production is the union of natural systems with advanced science and complex engineering. Smart people across the globe create this remarkable place we call Upstream, and each day brings a new challenge. This is the Oil and Gas Upstream podcast, where we look at how these systems come together and learn from the people who make it happen. Big thanks to the Offshore Technology Conference for allowing us to be here. Even bigger thanks to Fifth Ring for sponsoring the Offshore Technology Conference Podcast Pavilion. Fifth Ring is a global B2B marketing and communications agency with over 30 years of experience in the energy sector and beyond. And its presence in Houston, Aberdeen, and Singapore enables the agency to help companies all over the world build better brands and sell more stuff. Learn more about Fifth Ring by visiting fifthring.com. Link is in the show notes below. Welcome to Oil & Gas Upstream. I'm Elena Melkert, your host. Some of you know me as the former director for Oil & Gas Upstream Research at the U.S. Department of Energy. I retired from the DOE about a year ago and founded a small oil and gas consultancy and became a podcast host. I'd like to introduce our guest for today is Nora Tritz, Vice President, Business Development for WorkStrings International. And also, we're recording live here from the exhibit hall of uh, Offshore Technology Conference 2023. And this is day three, right? Day three. Are you feeling it like I am? I am not, because (laughs) this is my first day that I actually came out here, so I kind of try to limit my exposure to this. But I mean, beyond just the conference, there's a bunch of social events and stuff, and overall, it's a a fun week to uh, to take a a step out of your day-to-day and Take a look at what's going on and connect with people. So yeah. Enjoy yeah. that aspect. Yeah, I love I love OTC. Well, so Noah, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little bit about what aspect of upstream your company is involved in, something about your company. Sure. You know, what we want to hear. We want to know. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, like, like you said, my name is Noah Tritz. I'm the Vice President of Business Development for WorkStrings International. Uh, WorkStrings is a global drill pipe and landing string rental company. So we rent drill pipe landing strings for drilling and completions and the gamut of accessories and handling tools to support those strings. And we do so across the globe. So we're active on the U.S. onshore, Gulf of Mexico, and then international deep water. Uh, we do have some international land basins as well, but we really focus and what we really uh, spend a lot of time and a lot of energies on the deep water tubulars. The high spec, uh, high tensile strength, high material grade uh, tubulars used for some of the most deepest and challenging wells in the world. And so uh, we've really worked and spent the last several decades kind of trying to separate ourselves and, and focus exclusively on the front end technologies and, and the true deep water applications for, for drill pipe. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Um, and so just for people who are not oil and gas subject matter experts, sure. when we talk about offshore, then we talk about deep water, and then we talk about ultra deep water. 
talk about the, the depth of water, the water depth we're talking about in those three de designations. I know it's not a hard line, but sure. it is pretty. Uh, and it differs uh, depending on where you are in the world, too. So, I mean, if, if you want to use the Gulf of Mexico as a, a frame of reference, you know, the Louisiana Shelf, you can go out several miles quite a long ways and still stay in relatively shallow water under 1,000 feet, in some cases under 500 feet. Right? Of what? Um, and of, right, of Above water. the seafloor. And so there's been, you know, there's not as much activity uh, on the shelf these days as there has been in the past, but there's still some, and there's uh, some that still think that there's uh, more to be had there. So there's some exciting things going on the shelf, but uh, once you get past that shelf, you get into deep water, and when we talk about deep water, we're really talking anything above really 5,000 feet water depth. Um, some of it goes as deep as 10,000 feet, and some of them are trying to stretch even further than that. So, uh, but that's really where we kind of where when you get into those those deeper waters and the and the deeper TDs, then the uh, you know the technical sophistication of the tubulars required to get to those depths uh, is a paradigm step above what you would require on in the shallow water or onshore type drilling applications. So. Uh, it really is three different delineations of, of technical, uh, I don't want to say aptitude, but technical requirement for those type of type of wells. So. And do you talk about ultra deep water? We do. So I guess you consider ultra deep water somewhere around the 10,000 foot water depth range, plus or minus. Right. So when you think about that, I guess some examples in, in the Gulf of Mexico would be like the Jack St. Milo uh, field for Chevron, which is one that they've operated for a long time. That would be a good example of ultra deep water. And then you got some of the 20K and HPHT plays that are coming on. You have Beacon out there in the Shenandoah. That would be considered ultra deep water. Uh, Anchor for Chevron, ultra deep water. And then uh, Sparta, which is one that Shell just purchased from Total. That would also be And these that are ultra for, deep water. for people who are not oil and gas, this would be like off of Louisiana, or are we talking closer Predominantly, to Predominantly, uh, if, you, if you're looking at a map and you're looking at the Gulf of Mexico, you would go south from Louisiana. And then you, you will go, there's an eastern and western boundary, you don't, um, but it would be, that would be the, the concentration area. Very good, very good. Yeah, no, this is, this is really important. And so, so how, how did you get into the oil business? I am a second generation, I'm second generation oil field services. So I actually uh, came up and I played professional baseball early in my life, college baseball, professional baseball. I didn't have a plan B for when I got released. So uh, when my baseball career ended, uh, I moved back to Houston. My dad had worked in, uh, for Vetco Gray and then for work strings and spent his entire career in, in oil field services. So uh, I was looking for a job and they had an opening and that was oh, about 11 years ago. And here I am today and I'm still doing it and I love it. Um, but yeah, it's not something that I grew up thinking that I was going to make a career out of or even go in the direction of, but I was... Uh, blessed to have the be in the right place and have the right opportunity and the right set of circumstances then i get my foot in the door and from there i just really i took to it and i, I really enjoy it and uh, uh and here we are today 10 years later and i'm still doing it still doing it can we ask you about your baseball career sure. professional who, who yeah, did you yeah I, uh, I got drafted by the toronto blue jays in 2006 played collegiately at the university of texas in san antonio i spent uh two plus seasons bouncing around the minor leagues between uh, Florida and, and New York, uh, with a small stint in Michigan as well. 
And then, you know, I got released uh, going into my third season. And from there, I just came back. I moved back to San Antonio and finished my degree. Uh, I moved back to Houston, got in the love field. I did go, uh, I went to the University of Texas in Austin and got my MBA. Uh, what was your undergraduate ago, so. work? My undergraduate, I was a Bachelor of Arts in Economics. Economics, so okay. I, you know, I had an undergrad in Economics. Got my MBA from UT Austin in 2020. So uh, yeah. really just... Uh, that's, that's kind of the path yeah. that I've taken to get to where I am today. And, and what position did you play in? Your I was basically? a pitcher. I was a relief pitcher. Oh. Yeah, so I was good for one, maybe two innings. Come in and throw as hard as I could. <laughs> if you needed more than that out of me, you're looking in the wrong direction. So, but uh, oh that was my dream. That's what I had, I chased. And, and you uh, got to live the dream I did, for a little I did. while. It was Not great. everybody can say that. No, they so don't. And, you know, that, I knew going into it, it was a 32-second was a round pick. Yeah. So, uh and I was a senior in college, so I had two decisions. I had no eligibility left, so I was either going to get a real job or I was going to go <laughs> sign my $1,000 signing bonus and take my plane ticket to the spring training. And right. for me, it was a no-brainer. Right, uh, yeah. right. So, so let's, let's get into some of the, the technical aspects of, sure. uh, of the um, equipment that you rent out Absolutely. to others. Um, and I'm going to ask you to try to put in some... Um, high-tech things for those uh, of us who are subject matter experts, as well as some of the fundamentals for those who are not subject matter sure, experts no in uh, oil and gas. So if you want to start from the basic fundamentals, uh, you think of a drill string, right? and you think of it in an offshore application or an onshore application, you have a target that is anywhere from 10 to 30,000 feet below the rig of where you think the reservoir is or where you think the, the oil or gas is. And you're essentially trying to hit that with a bit, and, uh, and behind that bit is a large string of drill pipe, right? And so, when you're, uh, that is basically, the, if you think about drill pipe, that's what it is. It's, any, it's a joints of pipe that will make up a thousand, or a 10,000 to 30,000 foot string. And there's, you know, the evolution of drilling on land now, it's not, you're not necessarily going straight down anymore, right? You're going down, you're building a curve, and then you're going horizontal for a mile. And so uh, with that, you know, that different, there's different trajectories and the uh, technical difficulty of the wells being drilled and your evolution of drill pipe and your high torque connections and your fatigue resistance and all that comes into play. So uh, from the outside looking in, drill pipe is nothing more than a steel tube with threads on each end. But when you get, and it's considered, they call it dumb iron because there's no moving parts. But in reality, uh, when you get into the weeds with it and you get into the nitty gritty and you get into the application specific tubulars, it's some of the smartest dumb iron that, that exists on this planet. There's a lot of R&D, a lot of engineering, a lot of design hours that go into making these connection technologies, these material grades. And so on the land side, you have a smaller gamut of pipe that you're playing with. You're really either you're using anything from three and a half to five and a half inch OD drill pipe. Um, there's a variety of connections, but it's a lot smaller scope. When you get into the deep water stuff, you know, you're talking about a tapered string that could start a, a diameter of anywhere from seven and five eighths to six and five eighths at the top. Inch. And inches, correct. And then go all the way down to three and a half at the bottom. And you're spanning a, a potentially up to thirty thousand foot string of pipe. So, you know, and there's different applications on the. We, the one thing we talked about too is landing string, right? So that's a totally different 
application than the drill pipe. The drill pipe, you know, is rotating and you're spinning uh, with the bit trying to make hole, but on, on the landing string side, you're, you have these uh, super high spec, high tensile tubulars that are non-rotating application because you're essentially landing, well, you're not essentially, you are, you're landing a million plus pound strings of casing, right? So you're actually installing the casing into the well and we've gotten, you know, to the point where now we have a three million pound landing string, a landing string with a three million pound tensile rating that's capable of landing uh, some that what will be some of the heaviest casing strings ever landed in the history of, of offshore drilling. So it's we're on the very front edge of the of the technology that's being used or that's fixing to be used uh, in some of the most difficult and challenging wells in the world. And it, that's what really keeps it exciting and keeps us going. And that's where WorkStrings has really separated itself in, in terms of we want to live on that front end of that technology. And that's where we've invested the R&D. That's where we've invested in the engineering. Uh, and so we're, it, it keeps it very exciting. It's a very exciting, exciting space to, to live in. So. Right, right. And so we're talking about um, making up a string. Each yeah. joint is how long? About 40? Uh, so uh, there's uh, they call it range two pipe, which would be about 31 foot joints. And so some of the older rigs or the land rigs are not capable of handling anything longer than that. And you have range three pipe, which is 45 foot joints. And some of the newer spec rigs are uh, certainly offshore. Almost all offshore rigs these days uh, are capable of and prefer range three pipe. Uh, there are still some jack ups and platforms that are not. And so they'll run range two. Yeah. So if you think about you know, a 30,000 foot string that consists of 30 foot joints, it gives you an idea uh, of how many joints of drill pipe you're providing to to make up that entire string. Right, right. And what happens is you spud and you drill a little bit and then mm -hmm. you go down, down, down until you get to the end of the joint and then you screw another one on top of that and then you drill a little bit more and you just make your way down, 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 down. Correct. And, and uh, depending on the conditions that you're in and, and where you're drilling and what your rig capabilities are, it can be a very slow process or in some some places it goes faster than others yeah yeah these guys on u.s land have gotten pretty good at at making holes so you that's know it's right. a it's interesting the other part that's really exciting about what we do is that we play and you know we're on the u.s onshore we're in the gulf of mexico we have the international deep water so we get to see we get to see a whole a wide gamut of, of applications for our product so yeah. it's really uh it's really cool to be and have a little bit of play in all three of those areas. Yeah, yeah. So so I was with the Department of Energy before I retired. I was the director of upstream oil and gas uh, research. And so research is what I really love, the, mm -hmm. you know, the cutting edge of understandings about technology and what's possible and what challenges we have to solve. And I love the brain candy. I mean, I just oh, I yeah. love that part. So what are some of, if you can share, some sure. of the uh, uh, research that your um, organization has done, some advantages that have resulted from that for, you know, sure. drill stream? So I think the, about the most recent products that we brought to market, uh, the three million pound landing string that's fixing to be deployed for the first time on on Transocean's Titan rig. I'm not sure if you've heard of the the Deepwater Titan, but this is a rig that Chevron and Transocean built specifically for the anchor project. So it will be the either the first or second, depending on. I'm not sure if the Atlas, which is its sister rig, has a three million pound derrick, but uh, those are the first two rigs to be deployed in the world with a three million pound derrick. Uh, which means that uh, in order to take full advantage of that derrick, they wanted a three million pound landing string. And so that is something that we worked hand in hand with Chevron 
And with NOV to bring to market, we have the entire string and the entire system to run the string sitting in our yard today, waiting patiently for the Titan to get here. I believe the Titan arrives this weekend. Oh. So it's exciting to yeah. see that rig go to work for Chevron, but that is definitely the, uh, that, and that was a project that started, oh man, we, we probably started seven years ago, eight years ago, designing this string, talking to Chevron about what the requirements were gonna be, talking about to NOV Grant Prideco about what their capabilities were. And so it was a very collaborative effort uh, several years in the making, so uh, to see it finally, the Titan finally get here and have this string close to deployment is super exciting. Yeah. So uh, the other one on the completion side, uh, we have the world's only seven and five eighths rotary shoulder drill pipe. Uh, it's called Diameter. Maxit 807, and it's a uh, we built that string in again in a collaboration with NOV Grant Prico uh, as a completion riser. Uh, for some of these uh, extra large crown plugs that... Oh, you're going to have to explain that one. <laughs> okay. So, uh, but the, extra large crown and then... Yeah, so I mean, during completions or, or uh, you have the, the crown plug, which sits at, at the wellhead. And so depending on the size of that crown plug, you need a tubular large enough to drift that crown plug. And so after you, historically, after you got to a certain size of crown plug, there was not a drill pipe available that could accommodate that size. You would have to go to an OCTG type tubular, which is a casing type tubular. Um, and so in this type of application, when you have a threaded and coupled connection, you're talking about uh, a lot more inefficient running time. So um, customers were asking for a drill pipe that could accommodate that larger size crown plug. And so we went to work with Grand Prico to build this seven and five inch seven and five eighths inch OD uh, drill pipe uh, and to use it in a completions or, or work over scenario where traditional drill pipe IDs were not uh, suitable to accommodate the drift required of different tools. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, that's fascinating. Um, so back to the Titan, if you don't mind, sure. is, it, is it okay to ask you how what the water depth of that is? Uh, Can you so the I don't know what the maximum capability. But I mean, you're working with them on something. So yeah, Can the anchor, add? the anchor field. I think is uh, <clears throat> is is the the field that the rig has been was built to so is to it operate in. Deep water, ultra it's, deep it's water. It's I would. I mean, I have to go back and look. I want to say it's something like 8,500 feet. Okay. But so I could be wrong. It, uh, it's so it's somewhere very in that deep area. water. It's very deep. It's yeah. it's definitely deep water. Yeah. If you want to call it ultra deep water, I don't really know where the line of delineation is for ultra deep water, but. What's uh, the difference between, say, Anchor, Shenandoah, and Sparta, and some of the other fields that have been operated in the Gulf of Mexico historically is these are all classified as high-pressure, high-temperature applications. So you get into a, a different set of uh, regulations with Bessie when you start operating in these, uh, these pressures and these temperature combinations where you're, and you're starting to see these... Uh, these 20,000 PSI pressure. So it's a, a, once you get into that realm, then you have a, a different set of rules you have to play by for Bessie. So if you look at the Titan specifically, I mean, the blowout preventers, everything on that rig is gonna be serial number one, including our landing strength. Um, and it, you know, I, I can't speak for the rest of the companies that have spent money and, and years of, of R&D and, and sweat equity to develop their tools, but I know for us, um, 
the challenge was significant. It took a lot of collaboration. It took a lot of design hours. And it's something that just with uh, our, our team is, is super proud of and we're super excited to, to see it get out there. Yeah. And just to clarify, Bessie is not a person. Bessie is the Bureau of Safety and Environmental Enforcement uh, for the Department of the Interior. They are the regulator for offshore oil and gas operators. Yes, that's correct. And uh, they, they, if they say we can do it, we can do it. They say we can't do it, we can't do it. And that's the end of that. <laughs> that is the end of that. So. And they, uh, but, you know, they, they've also been a, a huge help in, in under, helping understanding and and seeking out SMEs and feedback on some of the specs for some of these uh, these new tools and these applications. I mean, there's a lot of people, a lot of years of experience that have gone into designing uh, both the regulations for BSI and API that have come out that address the, the HPHT space. So it's so you, super exciting. And you said you, you worked all over the world as well. So are yes, the uh, regulations as um, strict in other uh, parts of the world as they are you know, in uh, the it US? varies widely uh, depending on which region of the world you're you're looking at i mean uh, you can you know if, uh, take australia for instance they are very they have a lot of very environmentally conscious they have a lot of uh they're it's a, i would call it a highly regulated basin or or uh drilling atmosphere over there so comparable to uh, the u.s comparable to the u.s if not even uh yeah little... comparable to the u.s we'll okay. just call it that that's okay. fine Okay. Um, other regions, you know, you're working the full scope of from for, from developed to undeveloped countries. So there's a lot of you take. Uh, so you, like I say, you were you, you have the full gamut of uh, different environments that you have to. How do you say it? I guess uh, you have to navigate, right? And navigate so, is the right word. <laughs> navigate is the right word. Right. So Australia, for instance, is one that. Is highly regulated, not unlike the United States or the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, some of the other developing countries, uh, they have you may have a, these massive discoveries in, in these areas, and their governments have never had to address some of the concerns that they're now oh, facing. Okay. And so, you um, you see an evolution of what that regulatory environment is going to look like. And so from an operator's perspective, they have to gauge that too. They have to gauge what the local content regulation is going to be. Um, they have to gauge what the environmental uh, standards are going to be. And then that, that all goes into the, their capital evaluation or the commercial evaluation of whether they're going to operate there near term, long term, how much they're going to invest in it. So um, it, it really is a... Uh, it's some it's it's navigating and it's it's fluid you know what is today the standard in one area could next month very well have evolved into something more sophisticated uh, more strenuous more more regulated and then it you know you have to evaluate whether that uh, changes your your position commercially or not whether you want to be there long term and it only goes one way they only get stricter they never yeah, get looser. you don't see a whole lot of uh, <laughs> you don't see a whole lot of reversal but i mean it it's for the better. In the long run, it's for the better. So, uh, and we can do it. We can. And That's the thing. We've I mean, always risen to that challenge. Yeah. So one of the so one of the themes here at um, OTC 2023 is the uh, low carbon. Uh, right. So I want to ask you about you know tubulars in um, 
other applications like sure. geothermal and carbon yes. storage and talk a little bit about that especially for people who are not subject matter well you know this, these are new areas these so are new areas i mean there's a lot of people that have probably spent several years in oil and gas that aren't i can tell you for sure there are because we're we're not unlike all of those people that we're still trying to understand what this evolution is going to look like too we've been engaged by companies who are in the geothermal space and in the carbon capture space and so when you look at it uh, from our perspective and the tubular perspective, start with geothermal. Um, obviously, you're drilling into formations or rock that has extreme temperatures, right? Potentially temperatures that exceed what your drill pipe is traditionally, would traditionally or otherwise see in, a, in an oil or natural gas reservoir or application. So, you know, there's a lot of technologies around, you know, protecting the pipe. But at, this, at the end of the day, you still have a rig, you still have a, a target reservoir, and you still, until they can drill with lasers, you're going to be drilling with drill pipe, right? <laughs> and so They actually can drill with lasers, but it's not a, a universal application. Not a universal like application. <laughs> so, um, that, you know, we're in that space. We have been participated in a couple of different geothermal projects um, uh, in the U.S., and it's, not a, it's definitely not something we're shying away from. As far as we're concerned, if you need drill pipe or you're drilling, uh, we, we are interested. Uh, on the carbon capture side, it's super exciting because if you look at some of the recent lease sales and who's spending money on which blocks, particularly in the Gulf of Mexico, you see uh, a lot of the shelf plays that have been, that are, are it's regaining attention, right? And so the traditional wisdom would tell you that the shelf, uh, is uh, at the end of its life cycle in terms of an oil field basin. But uh, if you listen to the people who have been spending a lot of time studying the carbon capture or the carbon sequestrian, they'll tell you that the Louisiana Gulf Coast is perhaps the most ideal place in the entire world for carbon capture. And when they say that, they're talking about shallow water Louisiana. And so that is a, a whole new set of... Uh, you know, a, a whole new way of looking at that, that particular part of the Gulf of Mexico. And so if that is able to gain some momentum and scale to the extent that they're saying it could, that could change the outlook or the perception of drilling in the Gulf of Mexico for the next quarter century. Yeah. It really could. If you were able to bring the shelf back to life, uh, that could, that, that, it changes the whole conversation, but it changes it away from drilling for oil. Right or drilling for natural gas, and they're just talking about drilling now. Is it you know if they if they have to drill new wells for this, then uh, you know there's a that means you need a new rig. That means you need drill pipes. That means you need all the oil field services companies that have been uh, you know weathering the the last several years uh, of the upstream oil and gas industry. So there there's a lot of potential there. A lot of people watching to see what happens, and and we're one of them. We're watching to see too. I mean, at the end of the day. We rent to the to the operators, so where they go is where we we're going to be. Yeah. Uh, if they're willing to go there and spend the money and invest and do that, then yeah. we weren't happy to be there. Yeah, and in terms of a little bit of the the science material science and oh, yeah. the notion of um, uh, oil and gas uh, tubulars versus the specialty applications, are there different materials that we oh, use? Oh, absolutely. For the so I mean, you talk about you know different environments around the world. If you look at places like uh, Kazakhstan or the Caspian Sea they have a high sour service content, high H2S content, so you have to have 
uh, softer material grades to rent tubulars in that in that environment. If you talk about the HPHT 20K stuff in the Gulf of Mexico, there high is pressure, a high pressure, high temperature. High pressure, high temperature, sorry. Um, you are talking about uh, a combination of pressures and temperatures that all of a sudden make a lot smaller concentration of H2S a bigger deal. And so you get into material grades that, that have to address that potential for H2S to be there, even if it's a, what would have otherwise been considered a insignificant concentration, right? So, uh, and, and it makes it challenging because these are deeper wells. These are more challenging wells. But the H2S component means that you have to go to a lower yield material, a lower material strength. So you're trying to build, you're essentially building bulkier materials out of lower, or bulkier end products out of lower grade materials or softer materials that can accommodate that H2S. So that, that is really where the, the, uh, the R&D and the challenge and, the, and the, all that go, comes into bringing that, that final product to, to market. And that's where Bessie's involved too, because that's their job to make sure that you've checked all those boxes and that you're accommodating that, so that everybody's going home to their family at the end of the day. That's exactly. And that's right. really the goal of everything we do. Our focus at WorkStrings is we want all of our people going home to their families at the end of the day, and we want all of our end users going home to their families at the end of the day too. Um, you talk about three million pound landing strings. You're talking about uh, UD165 material grade, and so those aren't familiar with that you're talking about a harder uh but stronger material grade to accommodate that kind of tensile strength or to provide that kind of tensile strength um you can go all the way down your traditional material grades on u.s land or anywhere from g105 to s135 so you have a it's not as not as big of a deal the material grades is not as a big as a big of a deal on u.s land or onshore applications as it is in deep water but yeah that's kind of the, the metallurgist part of it uh, uh, is on the deep water. They love it, too. Yeah, they love it. Absolutely. Well, we are almost at the end of time. Is there um, anything you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, just for anybody listening, if there's any kind of, uh, you know, technical project you're working on or remote area of the world that you're working on and you're concerned about a tubular availability or you're concerned about having the right landing string or the right drill pipe available to you, you know, uh, let us uh, take a look at it and see what we can do. We get to, we have the advantage of working across several different regions throughout the world, across several different operators, across several different customer bases. So we get to see a lot of different designs. We know what's out there in the market. Uh, our expertise spans across drilling, across completions, to the intervention space as well. So uh, we have our own in-house engineering team that focuses specifically on delivering customer solutions. So we're more than happy to talk to you about your challenge or your next project or, or any kind of hurdles you're facing and see if there's uh, something we can do to help you get there. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, Noah Tritz, Vice President, Business Development, WorkStrings International, wearing a wonderful cowboy hat right. here at OTC. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate the time. Absolutely. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please give us a review and tell, you, tell us what you like and what you'd like to hear about on future podcasts. This is Elena Melkert, your host for Oil & Gas Upstream. More next time. Join us again next week on the Oil & Gas Upstream podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.